All right, well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. Uh, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, lead pastor here, and uh, I am very excited to uh, continue uh, in our journey through the book of Romans. Uh, this is week three, and so I'm going to quickly recap. Uh, normally, I would spend a little bit more time based on where we've been, but um, yeah, let me, let me just jump in. So for the last two weeks, and again, we're, we're going to be in Romans 1 through 3 until the summer, uh, and then we'll pick it up again in the fall, and then we'll take a break for Christmas. We'll pick it up again in the spring. Uh, so we're going to be in Romans for a while, so buckle up. So if you've been taking notes, if you got one of our little, um, uh, just the book of Romans with a, with a page of notes on the one side, it might be looking a little bleak. Uh, we've been like, man, we've been in Romans for two weeks, but we've covered two verses. <laughs> when are we going to get to it? Well, um, kind of today, but today, man, is a lot. And, and as I got into the study, you know, sometimes there are some weeks where I'm like, oh man, what else? Can I say? You know what I mean? There's, there's, I, would, I want something else to, to, to preach this morning, but this week was more like, what, what do I need to uh, not talk about this morning to be able to get through just really just five verses sandwiched in between the two verses that we've already looked at? So let me just recap where we've been. So the previous two weeks, the first week we looked at the Apostle Paul, and then last week we looked at Rome. And so we looked at Romans 1, verse 1, and then Romans 1, verse 7. And that's where we've been. And so again, uh, if you've been coming to Lower Town, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, this should look very familiar. And again, not that you need to have it memorized, and yet it would be very good for you to memorize this in the sense that uh, it really helps you with studying your Bible. And so that, that first point is grasp the text in their town. Before we can get to point five, which is what we, a lot of people want to do, jump into application land. What does this mean to me? And this is what the, this verse says to me and grasp the text in my town. We have to do homework first. We have to. Uh, and so the first one is grasp the text in our town. And that's why we looked at the author. We, we spent a whole week looking at who was Paul. Uh, and then we looked at what is Rome? Where is Rome? Who are the people of Rome? And it's gonna have major implications to put ourselves in their shoes they're sandals before we really start then moving along. And so that then you gauge the width of the river there, what culture is it, what language, what time, what, what, what emperor is, is ruling right now, what, what uh, covenant are we in? And, and as we looked at last week, that river is really narrow, right? This isn't even a gospel like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John where, where Jesus is still alive. This is a church that has been planted by people that heard the good news of God in Jerusalem went back to their hometown and started planting churches like us. Uh, we've never uh, seen or met an apostle. We haven't seen any miracles. We never met Jesus. We never saw him risen from the dead. We just heard about it and they went back and the gospel spread all over the world, right? So that, that narrow river, but it's still a river, but it's narrow, right? The, 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 the book of Romans, sorry if I keep saying gospel of Romans, it's not a gospel. Um, and yet the gospel's in Romans. Um, but the book of Romans uh, that, that is very, a very narrow rim, uh, river in the sense that the, the book was written to the Romans, not to us. It wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And so we got to remember that. And then we can cross the principalizing bridge and then consult the biblical roadmap. Point number four there, consulting the biblical roadmap is a point that it's very easy just to overlook, uh, to skip over that. Where, where is this thought or this idea talked about in the scripture, all of scripture, Old and New Testament. It's all one, one Bible. It's all the word of God. And so to skip over some of those things, we, we miss out really on, on some, some depth to what is being said. And then, and then, and only then, finally, can we get to grasp the text in our town. So two weeks ago, again, looked at 
looked at Paul, right? And looked at that because of who he was, his conversion story, that he was out murdering and killing and arresting Christians. He hated Christians. Uh, he was a zealot for Yahweh, for, for Judaism. And then Jesus Christ shows up in him and, and blinds him and says, why are you persecuting me? And then he's like, oh, oh, I, I've been reading the story wrong. And now I need to now I need to tell people about Jesus. It says immediately after those three days of blindness, he starts preaching the gospel in the synagogues. And he's been called to be an apostle, one that's been sent out uh, by Jesus Christ specifically. Uh, he has been called to the Gentiles, to all other ethne, um, not just the Jews. And so just kind of looked at that point that no one anywhere at any point is beyond the reach of the gospel, nobody. And then reminded that the book of Romans is written to a church it's not written to people who are non-believers or people other than us. It's written to the church that we need the gospel every day, every moment. And then last week, then looking at specifically Rome and the big aspect was how do these churches get planted in Rome? And I've already talked about this. Peter and Paul didn't go there. They didn't start these churches. Um, looked at the, the historian, the first century Roman historian that had mentioned that Claudius, the emperor at the time before Nero, and he ends up kicking out the Jewish Christians and they scatter and they go to Jerusalem. They hear the gospel. And then, then after uh, Claudius dies, they go back to Rome and they're gonna see a very different Rome. They're, they're, they're gonna, right? Things are gonna change. They go back to church. Now the leadership in the church is not gonna be Jewish people who are now Christians. There's gonna be other ethnicities that are gonna be running the church and things are gonna be a little different and how the Jews would have maybe been adapted to the church and, and maybe had a little bit of one, one foot or a toe still in the law, it's gonna be a little bit different. And so I quoted uh, Doug Moo, uh, he quoted him from his commentary. He says, these circumstances are a recipe for division along social and or theological lines. Moreover, the decentralized nature of the Jewish community from which the Christian community sprang would also make it more likely the Christians in Rome were grouped into several house churches. Confirmation of this was the case from Romans 16, which we looked at last. We're gonna to jump to the end to, to, to look at the names and the churches that would have been present there, uh, where Paul seems to get several different house churches. It is possible then that different house churches align themselves more or less with a group, with one group or the other. And so that, that's gonna be um, very pertinent in, our, in our, the rest of our time of looking at who it is that Paul's talking to. Paul is writing to this church that there might be a little theological division in it of, hey, how, how do we, how are we saved? How do we remain saved? How do we be good Christians? He's gonna talk through all that stuff with them. So this week, um, we're gonna be in Romans 1, 1 through 7, but I wanted to um, start off with this. I have been reading the, the Chronicles of Narnia with my almost six-year-old, and we've gotten through the, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we're almost done with Prince Caspian, but The Voyage of the Dawn Treader um, is my favorite of the series. And I don't know why, The Silver Chair is a close second, but, but this one, there's just, there's just some imagery in there of the little mouse, reach a peak or something like that. You know, I never have like heard it. I only like read it. You know, and you like read a word and then you're like, oh, that's how it's said. Like hors d'oeuvres, you know, it's like, oh, then it's hors d'oeuvres. It's like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> um, right, something like that, right? Uh, you read it and it's like, anyways. Um, some really cool imagery, but if, if, and if you're not familiar with the books, that's okay. But in the beginning, the Chronicles of Narnia, it's called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They discover, these little kids, Peter, Susan, Edmund, Lucy, they discover this Narnia, this other land uh, by going through a wardrobe. 
and Prince Caspian, they are on their way to boarding school. The boys are going on one train. The girls are waiting to go on another train. And as they're at the train station, this magic then pulls them, um, even though they didn't want to, it was kind of painful for them. It pulls them, it rips them back into Narnia. And it's been thousands of years in Narnia, but in England, it's only been a year uh, and it's kind of the same thing with the voyage of the Don Trotter, but Peter and Susan have grown up. They're out of the picture. And so now it's just um, Susan, uh, sorry, sorry, Edmund and Lucy, the younger of the two, and their cousin Eustace, thank you. Uh, Eustace is there, who's really annoying. And Edmund was really annoying. Eustace is really annoying. And um, anyways, they're standing there. They're in a room and there's this painting. There's a painting of, of a ship on the, on the ocean, on the sea. And as that happens, all of a sudden, these kids are in the room, and, and I don't remember exactly, but they're, they're playing, they're wrestling, they're fighting, whatever it may be that kids normally do. And all of a sudden, they, they get splashed with water. And, and they're like, what, what was that? And, and then they get splashed again, right? This picture kind of comes to life, and then pretty soon the whole room just gets flooded, and they get sucked in uh, to the sea that is in this, and then they, they are rescued by this, this ship. I say all that because that's kind of what's going to be happening today in this text. This text is not gonna let us come up for air. We're gonna get hit with a wave and get hit with another wave and hit with another wave. And you're gonna be like, I'm sopping wet. I want a break. Can we just stop? And had I thought about this a little bit more? Yeah, maybe we could have taken a break and planned this out better, but I did it. So we're gonna cover a lot this morning. Um, and so, so buckle up, here we go. So we are in Romans 1, 1 through 7. Uh, again, already looked at 1 and 7. So, so really gonna be focusing in on 2 through 6. And again, there's a lot that's going to happen here this morning. And, and I think you know me, I like to teach, I like, I like theology, I like, to, I like depth, and yet I don't want you just to learn the Bible. I, I don't want you just to fill in and go, oh, what's, the, what's this Greek word? What's, what's this mean? Wow, that's really good. I don't want you just to learn an exegete. I want you to believe this. <laughs> this is life-changing. We need that. We need the Spirit to open up our hearts and to change us from inside out, not just outward in, not just to, to learn something new about a text. And so um, I'm gonna read this. If you're, if you're able to stand, why don't you go ahead and stand with me as I read our text for this morning. I'll just read it. You don't need to read it along with me, but uh, at least out loud, and I will read this text. So Romans 1, uh, 1, uh, 7, uh, 1 through 7 says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, you may be seated. That's the text we're gonna be at. So if you've been taking notes, if you've been writing things down, I wanna start with this overarching theme. What is the main point of Romans? What is Paul's main goal? Like if there's one big question that we're gonna be trying to answer through understanding what the Apostle Paul is writing for the next year and a half, what is it? Well, there's a popular question, which is a good question is this, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? That's a great question. It's a great theological question. It's a question I think every Christian at some point in their life needs to wrestle through. 
and needs to study. Right, it's a good question. That's, that's usually how this is phrased. And Paul is gonna be wrestling with this same question. These same, that hasn't changed. None of this has changed. When you talk about eternal judgment, people are gonna go, mm, that doesn't seem fair, right? It's always gonna, and that's a, it's a good and it's a valid question. That's not what Paul is trying to answer though. Paul is answering the opposite of this. Paul's question over the entirety of the book of Romans is how can a just God allow anyone into heaven? That's the question that Paul is trying to answer. He's saying, if, wait, 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 if, if, if we go all the way back to the beginning, we go all the way back to Genesis and God said that if you eat this tree, you're gonna die and not just a physical death, but a spiritual death that we're sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. How in the world can that just and holy God allow any sinful human being in his presence? How is that even possible? That's the question that he's trying to answer. When I was a student at, uh, at Bob Jones University, um, Dr. Bob the III, the third, DB to the three, uh, we used to call him, um, he would, he would walk with this, just this ridiculously huge pulpit. I mean, just massive pulpit. And it was just, you know, this whole auditorium, we were required to go to chapels. There's like seven, 8,000 students, you know, this huge auditorium. And he'd walk out. And I always like wanted like, dun, 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 dun. It just always like, I always thought that. But anyways, like the emperor, you know, coming out. Anyways, um, he, was, he was a very nice man. Is, he's still alive. Um, anyways, he, he had the saying that he would do to the entire student body where he would come out and he would say the most, sober, the most sobering thought in the world today that's what he would say. And then the entire student body would say is that people are dying and going to hell today. That's what he would say. We'd kind of do this call and repeat. And that's true. But even as a young man, as a 17, 18 year old, I, I still had this side of the question of like, that is very sobering, but yet how, how does anyone get in? Nobody's good enough, right? That, that's, that's the other side of this coin. And that's what Paul is trying to get at. This is something that, that Martin Luther is gonna wrestle with. Martin Luther was a good guy by all his standards, a righteous man. He confessed everything. He would go to the confessional booth for, I'm not making this up, for hours to the point where he would miss prayer time and chapel. And so he would be in confession and have to confess that he missed his scheduled prayer time. To the, right, this, the priest hated him because he was always in the confessional booth. And he was like, I, I, I've fallen short. How can anyone be good enough? That's the question that Paul is trying to get at. So again, why spend so much time in one book? This is a question that came up just this last week. I was with another pastor from a different church. And he was like, what are you preaching on? I was like, Romans 1, 1 through 7. He was like, I thought, I thought you just preached on Romans 1 and Romans 7. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know, but I got to get all the other stuff. You know what I mean? There's still a lot. There's a lot in here. So why, why spend so much time? This is a quote here from uh, Richard uh, Longnecker. He's got a, uh, another commentary in Romans, whatever. He says this, despite its status, that is, um, uh, that is the, the book of Romans, despite, yet despite its status in the church and its importance for Christian thought, life, and proclamation, Romans is probably the most difficult of all the New Testament letters to analyze and interpret. It can hardly be called a simple writing. In the winter of 394 to 395, Augustine, St. Augustine, like the guy, the theologian that we still quote today, began to write a commentary on Romans. But after commenting on the first seven verses of chapter one, what we're gonna talk about today, 
He felt unable to proceed saying that the project was just too large for him and that he would return to easier tasks. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna try to tackle what Augustine couldn't do in a commentary in the next 30 minutes, okay? This is a, this is a, there's a lot going on here. So where do we begin? If you notice when I was reading, it was all a run-on sentence. It's all one phrase, right? This is, and this is in, in the Greek here. Uh, if you remember doing diagramming, right? And it starts off with Paulos, and then, and then it goes to the a, a doulos, a slave to Christos, right? To Christ. And so that's, and then it just goes. And everything, everything underneath there, I know it's really hard to see, and that's not the point is to see it. It all hinges. It all goes back to Christ Jesus. It's what I, the whole thing. And so it's all just kind of a crazy puzzle, but not a puzzle. You can, it's language. We can figure it out. So let's walk through this text this morning. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I spent an entire week looking at this verse. Paul, a slave would be a better uh, word translated there. Uh, not, it's, it's doulos, which is going to be translated slave in other passages in, within Romans. So why the translators decided servant here, I don't know. But his preeminent, his chief uh, uh, acclimate when it comes to who he is. Isn't his apostleship, uh, isn't that he's been set apart, it's that he is a slave to Christ. He has a new name. He has a new master. Literally a new name. A servant for Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, one that has seen the resurrected Lord that was set out, sent by Christ to go and preach the gospel and set apart something vocational. It doesn't need to be a, a professional uh, Christian, right? Doesn't need to be a, a, someone in ministry or something. Whatever vocation you've been set apart for, for the gospel, for the glory of God. So let's keep going here though. In verse two, it says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Again, a study help, especially for Paul when he has these, because this, this isn't the only time he's gonna have a long chunk that's just gonna be one thought. He does this quite a lot. He's, he's masterful with it though. He always catches the rabbit, right? He starts getting all these rabbit trails and then he always, he always gets it though. You know what I mean? He doesn't just leave you hanging. Um, is, is to focus on the first word. And so when the verses, the verse breaks are not um, inspired. They were added in the 1100s, I think. Um, and so they're not inspired, the, the, the verses and chapters and all that um, and, and paragraphs and everything. But, but, that, but, they're, but they're there. They put the breaks there for a reason. It's kind of a break in thought, if you will. But there's not a sentence there. Uh, so you got to be careful. And so the, the, the which is always going to refer to something, right? So, so Christ Jesus, which he promised. So the promised one, right? And as I mentioned, a lot of things in this past are going to link back to Christ Jesus. Then I jump down there to the end of verse five, for the sake of his name among all the nations. So Christ Jesus, which he promised beforehand, that's what I've titled the sermon, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures for the sake of his name, among all the nations. Again, it's really important to grasp the text in their town. And so there are theological implications here, especially for the Jewish readers that would have for thousands of years gone under the assumption that you need to become Jewish in order to be in the in crowd. If you wanna be saved, if you wanna be in, you need to become an Israelite. You need to look like us, you need to act like us, you need to eat like us, you need to worship like us, and then you're in. And so now the apostle Paul is writing, he's saying, this has been promised beforehand that it's his name among all the nations, right? It's, it's not new if you've been coming to Lower Town. We've been talking about that quite, quite a bit, but the Messiah has been promised. 
The anointed one, the one who is gonna redeem Israel has been promised, but it's not just promised for Israel, but for all nations. Paul's gonna say this again at the end of the book in Romans 16, says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed to the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Use that same language again, all ethne, every ethnicity. So I wanna focus in specifically on that consulting the biblical roadmap, just for a moment. Let's consult the biblical roadmap. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> what did the, uh, <laughs> forgot about that. What did, the, uh, what did the cowboys say at his second rodeo? It's not my first rodeo. This is not Paul's first rodeo. That was my transition there. I apologize. <laughs> I forgot I did that. <laughs> this is not Paul's first rodeo, all right? Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching. Paul is going to be preaching to people and he's going to use the exact same outline, right? He, he's like writing the, the, God, the book of Romans and he's like, oh man, remember that sermon I preached? That was really good. I'm going to use that again, right? So he, it's very similar. Same guy preaching, now he's writing it down for the, for the churches in Rome, right? We preached to you the good news in Acts 13, 32, the gospel of God, Romans 1, 1. We'll talk about the prophets, uh, which we read every Sabbath in 1327. And then in verse two, the prophets to the Holy Scriptures. Uh, in verse 23 in Acts 13, right, the descendants of this man, in verse three, descendants of David, going on. God has fulfilled this promise to our children, verse 23 in Acts 13. Romans 1, verse two, he promised before him. Uh, again, Acts uh, 13, 33, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm two, which we'll look at in just a second. And then in verse four, declared the son of God, with power, and then back to Acts 13, that he raised him up from the dead, and then in Romans 1, verse four, by the resurrection from the dead. It's the same, same outline, maybe a little bit different order, but he does it again. And so, again, we've talked about this idea, the big theological term of metalepsis, right? Is that when, the, when a New Testament writer quotes something from the Old Testament, don't just look at Psalm, uh, whatever that verse is gonna be, Psalm 2, uh, whatever it is, uh, seven, Psalm, Psalm two, verse seven. That's great. So Paul's quoting Psalm two, seven. Let's look at all of the Psalm, right? There's, there's a lot more going on in that Psalm than what he's just implying in that one verse, right? It's a fuller text. It's, it's, it's seeing it as fully, not just that one verse. So let's look at Psalm chapter two says this, it's a messianic psalm, meaning it's a prophetic psalm King David is writing about the coming Messiah, right? That David, as we just looked in Acts and in Romans, that prophets and people are writing things down that they don't even fully comprehend and understand what they're writing. They know that God has made promises. They know that, that God is doing something, that the Messiah is gonna be something, but they don't even fully grasp this. And it's only until Christ comes that we can look back like Paul and go, Oh, that's the meaning of that text. Right? We read our Bibles left to right, chronologically, but we interpret it right to left. I've got to look through the lens of the gospel to help me see Jesus in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter two. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's not very long. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, right? That's the Messiah against his anointed. That's what Messiah means. One who's been anointed with oil. You are my chosen one. 
So people have raged against his anointed one saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, this anointing, this anointed one, you are my son. And today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like the potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is what the apostle Paul is remembering as he writes these verses of the son, kiss the son, remember the son, you are the son. And what we can see from this all the way back in the old covenant under King David, under the Davidic covenant, and again, why this sermon is called the gospel beforehand is because I think that the main focus of this verse, of these verses that Paul is saying that for all time, for all people, all ethne, all nations, that it has always, always been about the son. It's always been about the Messiah. It's always been about the anointed one. He is a refuge for all nations. That's incredibly important. Again, remembering the context of who is listening to that sermon and reading that book. And then we see he is a descendant of David, continuing. So concerning his son, which again, take that word, connect it back. What is the concerning? Okay, concerning the prophets of the Holy Scriptures. The prophets of the Holy Scriptures are gonna talk about his son, which we just looked at. Listen, we could pull up a million verses that referenced Jesus in the Old Testament, but that was the, the, the main one specifically because Paul quotes it. The prophets of the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who is a descendant from David according to the flesh. And so again, let's consult the biblical roadmap. Where do we, how do we know this? Is, is Paul just making this up? Like, oh, hey, yeah, I was prophesied. And then here you go, here's Jesus. See, Jesus, he's the one. Well, you go back to 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, this is what has been called the Davidic covenant that, I, that Yahweh, God, is making a covenant with David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, right? A descendant of David who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, great. Well, well so, so he's supposed to have a, a son, but... But, but what, is that a big deal? He's gonna have a descendant. But the thing is even King David, I know I've mentioned this before in Psalm 110 verse one, a Psalm of David, that David says the Lord, again in your, new, in your English translation, if you see Lord in all caps like that, it's referencing Yahweh. It's a covenant name for, for Yahweh. So Yahweh says to my Lord, there is David, King David is the most wealthy, most powerful human being in the world at this moment. Who's his master? Right? Yahweh, God, says to my Lord, the anointed one, the son of God, which I've already written back in, in Psalm 2. 
stand at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. That he is both a descendant and his Lord. It's Jesus. Then we're going to see that he is declared in power. And was declared, so again, that hinges back up on Christ Jesus, was declared to be the son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what does this phrase here mean? Declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of the holiness, by his resurrection. Okay, so that's the big question that we, that we try to figure out. What, what does Paul mean that he was declared to be the son of God in power uh, by his resurrection? Did his resurrection make him the son of God or did his resurrection then declare him in power as the son of God, right? I know I'm right splitting hairs, but yet this is a very complex uh, phrase that the apostle Paul is talking about here. So uh, again, I'm not the expert on this. So let me read from uh, Doug Moo. This is from his, his big one, Maximus Moo, uh, what we refer to it as. Um, this is a little heady, but just follow with his thought on this phrase. The phrase, again, this uh, declared to be the son of God in power. This phrase could modify either declared, declared with power to be the son of God, or son of God, declared son of God in power, which is how some translations will translate that, the New English translation. But the need to uh, demarcate the second occurrence of son of God from the first, his son in verse three, strongly favors the latter connection. What? Here's what it means. What Paul is claiming then is that the pre-existent son who entered into human experience as the promised Messiah was appointed on the basis for, or perhaps at the time of, the resurrection to a new and more powerful position in relation to the world. By virtue of his obedience to the will of the Father and because of the eschatological revelation, something that was revealed in the future, mainly his resurrection, of God's saving power in the gospel, the son attains a new exalted status as Lord, as Kyrios, verse four. Son of God from eternity, he becomes son of God in power, able, dynatai, to save completely those who through, who, uh, sorry, to save completely those who come to God through him, Hebrews 7.25. The transition from verse three to verse four then is not a transition from human Messiah to divine son of God, adoptionism, okay? Here's, what, here's the point, because if we, if we don't translate this right, what we're saying is that God, or Jesus, excuse me, the son, is, becomes, through the resurrection, in power the son of God, right? That he was merely human, he learned who he was, and he, he believed who he was, and then he becomes the Messiah, he becomes uh, the perfect son of God. That, that, that's a, it's a, not an accurate way to read this. But from the son as Messiah to the son as both Messiah and powerful. Again, Messiah just means the promised one, the anointed one. And so Jesus is that. He's the promised one. He's the anointed one. He's the one who is going to redeem all nations, but that can't happen and doesn't happen until he raises from the dead. And so now he is both Messiah and powerful reigning Lord. 
It reminded me when I was reading that this week of this uh, meme that I show, um, I don't know if I've shown it before, but it pops up every Easter usually, right? Of the tomb of uh, this, this, this grave site of Jesus. And then you got Jesus, you know, also Jesus outside of it. You know what I mean? Like there's something about the resurrection that changes, right? He is always and has always been Jesus, but now he's Jesus, right? I mean, now he's got power. He defeated death. He rose himself from the grave by the power of his spirit. That's power. That's what this verse means, declared to be the son of God in power. How? By resurrection from the dead. Again, don't just learn that. Cool. That's what this verse means. Let me podcast about it. It's okay if you have podcasts, then podcast. It's okay. Believe this. Jesus rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God in power. And so now I want to look at this phrase, obedience of faith. I have been, even very recently, which is okay. I know I've mentioned this, be- I've mentioned this before. Been accused of uh, being an antinomianist. Uh, anti meaning no, nome, nomios is, is law, no law. Right, that uh, Brian, you preach the gospel, sure. Uh, but you are an antinomianist in that you don't believe that the law, you don't believe in obedience. You don't believe in like doing good things. You don't believe in good works. You don't believe in obeying. You don't believe in holiness. You don't believe in killing sin, right? But you're all about like the grace of God. And you say it every week, you've been set free to be free. So let's not go back to the law. You're like, yeah, law is bad, grace, good. You don't believe, that's, that's an antinomianist to some people. And, I, and, I, and if you want to accuse me of that, fine. I, I'm okay with that. I'll, I'll, I'll eat that. It's no problem. And yet, we can talk about them. We're going to talk about this, especially in the book of Romans, because this is going to be a theme that's going to pop up over and over and over and over and over again. Why do we obey? And should we obey? Uh, yeah. But it's not should because I need to, I have to, out of fear. I, I now get to obey, but I... I, would want, I should want to obey, right? My, my heart has changed. My attitude has changed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And there are gonna be times where I'm going to go back and submit myself to sin and the misery of the law. And by law, I mean doing something, putting regulations on my life that will prevent me from doing bad things. That's law. Those things inevitably break down, always. That's what this entire book is about. Don't go back to the law, and yet we should obey. But what is our motivating factor to obey? It's faith. We're going to get into this. I'm not going to necessarily get into this a whole lot right now. Um, But here's the text, right? So through whom, again, that refers back to the previous uh, slide there of Christ Jesus. So through Christ Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. So again, that phrase there, apostleship, is going to be to all people, all saints, in the sense that we're haven't, we haven't seen the resurrected Jesus. We haven't been commissioned. We can't perform miracles the way that the apostles could. He said, we have been sent out to preach the good news, the gospel. By grace, we've received grace and we've been called out, sent out to bring about the obedience of faith. So the question, again, that Paul is trying to get to Again, the big overarching question, how can a just God allow anyone into his presence, allow anyone into heaven? 
And then he's gonna do answer that question by looking at these other questions then of how do we get our faith? How do we acquire our faith? And some people are gonna read this and say, we acquire more faith and faith by doing good works, by obeying, by obedience, by holiness and set apartness. Rather than what I think, what we're gonna see is the Apostle Paul telling you, no, you are declared holy, you have been declared righteous, and so now we get to pursue freedom in Christ. Now we get to kill sin, and we should pursue it, and the hard work of killing sin. So does it, is it obedience that produces faith, or is it of faith, or from Faith. Let me illustrate it this way. My wife and I, we've been uh, recently watching the, uh, the show Blue Bloods. It's a long, old show uh, with, um, oh, no, I just forgot, mustache, man. Tom Selleck, thank you. Say mustache, you meet it, Tom Selleck, of course. Who else would it be? Um, and uh, in, this, in this show, uh, they're, all, they're all cops, as you can imagine. And, and so he's the commi- police commissioner for New York City, Tom Selleck is. And he's got, all of his kids are cops. And his youngest son, um, uh, whatever, it doesn't matter. His youngest son is a cop and he's married also to a cop, all right? And, and, and recently we were, we're, I think, I don't remember, it's like season 10, it's a stupid amount of seasons, right? Uh, and we're like years behind where it is right now. But there's a scene where his wife, who's also a cop, they have different shifts. She works nights, he works days, and they, they just kind of see each other in passing and, and she hands him a list of things to do when he gets home from work. And he says, oh, a honey-do list. And I don't know why, uh, just writing, right, it's drama. This uh, individual had never heard of the phrase a honey-do list. And so she got very offended um, that like, oh, you're only gonna do this because I'm a woman. It's like, okay, that's clearly not what the guy meant, but it is, it's, it's TV, right? Uh, you gotta have some kind of conflict in there. And so, but the, but the question is, and then the next day, he comes back, he sees his wife and he says, here, I did everything on your list. And then she gets mad again, right? Oh, you did it because I told you to do it, right? Okay, all right, right, and we've all been there, men or women, if you're in any kind of relationship with any other human being, you've had that kind of conflict, right? Like, no, no, so you said do this, I did it, and because I did it, now you're saying I only did it, right? That's what, that's, that's that, that right there is a life of a follower of Jesus, right? I'm doing this thing, but I'm doing this, am I I motivated out of love, right? I'm doing this thing, I'm doing my my to-do list, my obedience, because I love you. Not because simply because you've commanded me to do it and I'm doing it out of fear or repercussions. They're like, oh man, what is the look in Jesus' eyes gonna be if I don't do this thing? No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking. That's not what Paul's talking about here. I obey because of my faith. And we have been called, we've been commanded to obey. So what's our motivation, right? And then we have to, and Paul's gonna go into this. Does my obedience implicate salvation? Does the level of my holiness, which level, how holy do I need to be to be in? Fight sin, kill sin, yes. That a love for Christ because he first loved us. That's our motivation. The law kills and the law, law, the law is death. We're gonna read that. So then finally, you belong to Christ. You, every single one of you, you who belong to Christ, you've been called. He's gonna say this, including 
you, again, specifically talking about the, the Romans and their churches, but this is now a letter that's for us. You who are called, right? you've been called, you've been commanded to belong to Christ. You haven't been invited. Eh, if you want to come to me, sure. But if you don't, mm, no big deal. Right? I just invited some guys over to church next week. I'd be like, ah, I can't. I'd be like, you're out. Like, go to a different church. You know what I mean? Like, we're, we're done. We're cut off. No, that's a command. There's consequences to a command if you don't obey. There are not consequences to an invitation if you don't obey. You've been called to belong to Christ. And to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. There's that word called, commanded. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know everyone's situation. I feel like I know a lot of you quite well. And yet as we look at this text, like what, what was the point, right? And again, I don't want you just to learn. I want us to believe, and especially these last couple phrases here, including you, regardless of your situation, that it is Jesus Christ who sees you in your singleness, it's Jesus who sees you and calls you beloved in your struggling marriage. It's Jesus who sees you and loves you as you're frustrated in how to raise your children. It's Jesus who sees you and loves you in spite of your work conflicts, your relationship conflicts. It's you who Christ sees and calls you beloved in the midst of struggle of life and purpose. He sees you. So gospel application this week, you are loved by God. You've been called, you've been commanded. You belong to him. No one can take that away. Not even your own self, not even your own laws that you put up in your life. You can't take that away. You belong to him. You are loved by him. You are seen by him. In a moment, I'm gonna enter into time of communion, but I, I was thinking about this, of, of uh, this last week, um, I, I teach a systematic theology class uh, on Thursdays uh, to some uh, students, I guess, <laughs> people that are in the church. And um, this last week uh, specifically looked at the person of Jesus Christ. And, and we really uh, uh, looked in at his temptation. Was Jesus actually tempted? And I know we've talked about this before, but what is it that Jesus was tempted by? And a lot of times I think we jump into the passage where, we, where we, we can read that Jesus was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And immediately the devil says, if you are, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be turned into bread. He just fasted for 40 days, right? He's hungry, it says that in the text. And then Satan says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be turned into bread. But we gotta go back to the text before that, which is his, uh, which is his baptism. And he comes up out of the water by John the Baptist. And there's this booming voice from heaven that says, you are my son. Next phrase from the devil, if you are the son of God. And I wonder, right, that the, that the temptation of Jesus there wasn't just food. It was, man, am I really the son of God? Is there doubt that starts to enter in? And again, there's nothing sinful when it comes to that level of temptation or doubt. It's when we give way. And he doesn't. He believes. No, 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 Satan. I am the son of God. That is who I am because God said I was. 
This is us when we struggle and we have doubts to know that you are his beloved. You're seen, you are loved, you are cared for. And so we're gonna enter into a time of communion like we do every single week. And man, I know I've mentioned this before, but there are are just some weeks where I am just really excited to take these elements. Just weeks that I wanna remember who he is and I wanna remember the freedom that he has been given, that he has given us who have been called, who have been called loved by him and called us to obedience by faith that he has given us. That we can't do it, we can't earn it, we can't be good enough. We're all awful, terrible human beings. We are. And like Paul, I can quote it too, and I am chief among them. But God, who is rich in mercy, that while I was a sinner, died for me and called me to himself, and forgave me of my sins. And we get to take these elements and we get to remember that finished work of God. I can't do anything to add to the finished work. It doesn't make any sense. So we get to remember, we get to take these elements, the bread that represents his body that was broken for us, the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us, that we get to take off our old nature. We get to put on the righteousness of Christ as he bears the weight of our guilt and our shame and our sin. And so now we're free to obey and to love Christ, the Savior and Lord. If you're a follower of Jesus, I would love for you to partake of these elements. You don't need to be a member here at any church, but I would love as a family of the Big C Church to be able to partake of these elements together. Uh, I'm gonna pray and the worship team's gonna come back up and they're gonna play a couple more songs. So as you see fit, grab those elements, pray, confess, praise God, thank God for who he is. Um, And then we'll stand as you see fit to uh, close and, and singing some worship to the Savior. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are our Father in heaven and you are a good Father. You've seen our need. And while we haven't really answered the question looking at the text of Romans of how is it that a just God can allow anyone into heaven, we know the rest of the story. We know how this ends and we know that the only way, even if we don't understand all the inner workings of it, the only way that anyone at any point at any time can be saved is because of the good finished work of your son on the cross. That it is only by his blood that it atones for our our sin. So God, as we take these elements, would we do this together as a community, as a family, as your bride, as your church, as your ecclesia, as your sent out ones, called out ones to be holy in obedience of and in and through faith. So God, we love you and we thank you for what you're about to do. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.